It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of United Rewind, United Rewind. As those of you on Twitter, so not me, might have seen, Rob's taking a break from the pod. So this week I'm joined by a Twitter protagonist and a chief football writer of The Independent, Miguel Delaney, to look back at United versus Barcelona from October 1994. Hello Miguel. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad, not too bad. So yeah, I guess before we jump into it, um, without giving too much away, what because we don't want to ruin the end. Uh, what made you choose that game? Uh, well, I suppose, I mean, it, it, with the Champions League back at the moment as well, I kind of get you thinking in that sense, especially you now in the knockout stages, and it's usually the magic of the competition, if without crowds. And to be, this was the first game I can actually really remember that I suppose kind of conjured that image of the Champions League for me, especially given, and I, and I do mean the kind of the proper separation between the European Cup and Champions League, given I was probably a bit too young to properly uh, appreciate the old European Cup in that way. But I mean, like I, I was 11 years, I, I just turned 11 uh, on the, the night of this game, almost just a month before, basically. And like the 94 World Cup had been the first World Cup I was kind of properly conscious of as well. Like I, I can remember everything with Ireland and, and England in Italia 90, but it, it wasn't, I was, I was too young to kind of really consume a World Cup in that kind of classic childish way. Whereas 94 was... And obviously, I was obsessed with Romario and Stoichkov. So it just seemed so exotic for suddenly these players that were in the World Cup to now be playing an English team. Because obviously, in Ireland, we, we followed the English league like English people do. And just this sense of occasion. And, and of course, there's an extra little bit of kind of weight to it as well. Because obviously, the previous two seasons, the Champions League had been, the name had been changed and it kind of come into existence. But it wasn't really the Champions League as we know it. And it had that bizarre format where it was initial knockout stages before a kind of a Super 8 quarterfinals. Whereas this kind of reset it to have the, the group stage as we know it uh, at, at the start of the competition. And, and one of the things that kind of reminded me of or, as well, kind of watching the game again and, and what I remember from it is just how much peril there was in the group stage. I suppose like, any, I mean, anyone, of course, that, that, that regularly listens to this pod will know that all too well and remember kind of, so many long nights of the soul United had in Europe in the group stages. And like there was obviously a greater 
competitive balanced European football where teams like Fenerbahce or indeed Galatasaray or Gothenburg in this campaign could be properly dangerous for the big sides. And, and, and this just set that, this, this game set that sense of occasion for a, for a group match that we haven't really had for well, well over a decade. I mean, okay, this season, 2021, was a little bit of exception, but only because United were unlucky enough to be drawn in one of the the one group every season has three good teams. But really, we, we don't see peril or that, or that real sense of occasion anymore that we did in in that period from 94, say, to 98, 99. And it, it was really this game that said it and just had, because of everything wrapped around it, United were re- like, Ferguson won two league titles in a row at that point. So really, the kind of the, the, the quest for Europe was properly beginning, that kind of, that last frontier, he had the, that last big, big trophy, his holy grail. Uh, Barcelona were a team that had set the standard given the players they had, given they'd won it in 92. They'd been in the final in 94, albeit and been hammered. And so there was a sense of kind of almost rectifying that about this campaign for them. Yeah, I think it's funny, really, because you you mentioned that whole Super 8 thing, which uh, the main thing I remember about that was it got rid of the Rangers. The Rangers had that season. Was it 1991 where they where they came back against Marseille with Gary McSwiggan, but then they just, yeah. they just that Marseille just edged them out. Was it 91? Yeah, that was 92, 93, I think, because I think it was the year Marseille won it. Yeah, and um, what had happened to United, I guess, we, if we think about what happened to United, was that they, they'd won the league and then they'd got that go at the European Cup and it had been aborted before it even got started when they'd basically taken their foot, they'd gone tuned up against Galatasaray at home, taken their foot off the pedal without really realising. Because I think it was still at that point where we didn't know how good other teams could be. Because United had won the Cup Winners' Cup in 91, which seemed like just resuming what had happened yeah. before before the ban. And then, I mean, Arsenal had taken a proper hiding off uh, Benfica. Yeah, but they but ended up signing for Coventry, Isaiah. <laughs> it's it's yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and so it kind of thought, well, this is just going to be how it is, not realising that Tugai was actually a really good player and uh, Kubilai and Hakan Suka were really good players. And these countries who England was sort of used to not losing to had started to sneakily improve while England was looking the other way. Well, I mean, that, there is a kind of... I know it's kind of come up again recently about Ferguson's record in Europe. Well, I do feel that's actually one element that's often underappreciated. It's possible because of kind of the, the growth of United as a club by the end of the nineties, and also because maybe he won that Cup Winners Cup in ninety one. But like for, for 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 Ferguson's first decade in Europe with United, really, there was the huge hangover effect of the Heisel ban, and I I, I can't really be overestimated just how much the game transformed between nineteen eighty five and nineteen ninety. I mean, the Milan team, or the core of that Milan team that thrashed Barca in the 94 final had basically changed football in 89 with, with what Saki was doing. And it was a bit like Guardiola in 2009. In fact, Guardiola was really the next stage of what Saki did in 89. And it just completely transformed football tactics and European tactics from what, what we'd seen in what was kind of a, a much more regimented and staid decade of English domination between 75 and 85. Uh, and and I, I, I really think that's often underappreciated. With um... yeah, I mean, we kind of saw it really in um, in the way that the England team got on in the, in 1990. They basically changed to play a continental style at the last second and saved themselves. But then they appointed Graham Taylor and were rubbish in 92 and rubbish in 94 because other teams were just doing very different things to what to what they were doing and different things worked and. 
I mean, it happened. I mean, the first time it happened was when the World Cup started, when England decided that the home internationals were quite enough for them. Other teams were sneakily improving and they got beaten by USA and then they got walloped by Hungary because things change. And if you're not there, then you can't change with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, 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 and this was a theme of those first few years in this Champions League proper. I remember almost before every game was about how Ferguson would adapt to Europe. In fact, there was almost a bit of a Guardiola element at that point when Ferguson would always try some sort of little tactical variation in the game to try and swing it his way. And sometimes it often took away what United were good at. But I suppose the argument was that what United were good at that point, which I suppose and in this game it did really work, which is some old-fashioned wing play, it could kind of it was a bit too buccaneer for uh, for that level of Europe, and, and I suppose an, an, as an example of how he changed. Remember the the big uh, discussion before this match was how, and it shows just how um, daunt, how psychologically daunting Stoichkov and particularly Romario were, where that he brought in Paul Parker because of his man marking abilities. So just to have a quick look at what was going on in the world around that game, um, I had a quick look at the charts and you told me previously you had a particular affinity to Wigfield Saturday Night, which was uh, number three at that point. Well, well, I mean, I wouldn't say an affinity. It was this, the, the song that jumped out, but particularly because of Romario and Stoichkow. So obviously, as you can tell from the name, I'm, uh, I'm half Spanish. We used to spend entire summers in Spain. And that summer, 94, I basically watched all the World Cup in Spain. And the soundtrack to that summer was basically bloody <laughs> Wigfield Saturday night. So I actually, you know, there's almost that mental link between Stoichkov and Romario and that song. So it's amazing it was still in the charts at that point. I can just see Stoichkov doing the dance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other things that were, were going on, um, one of the greatest couplets of all time, uh, Come Back With Me Colour TV, with my CD collection of Bob Marley, which was Baby Come Back, which was at number two. Yeah. Uh, Oasis were at number seven, Cigarettes and Alcohol. One of the great underrated singles of the 90s, Lisa Loeb's Stay, I Missed You at number eight. Um, what else? We've got uh, some tremendous Europop, The Rhythm of the Night, Corona at number 11, and so on and so on, which I think one we, we talked about this a little bit before on the pod is just how good popular culture was in the 90s. Had a look at what was on in the cinema, and you had Forrest Gump, Four Weddings, Speed, The Mask, Lion King, and Pulp Fiction was imminent. Yeah, I've, actually, I've seen all of those bar four weddings, which I still have absolutely no inclination to see. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I too have not have, have not seen that. But just those, we've got the just huge, brilliant films. I also had yeah. a look at the news, and uh, what we had, which made me laugh, we had royal couple deny plans for divorce, and I thought, oh, yeah, you can always trust them. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, Charles and Diana. Then there was Peter Riddell had written this column in the Times saying history will put royal marriage fuss in its place. And uh, yeah, here we are in 2021. Then we had Mark Thatcher denying his role in a, in a dodgy arms deal. Yeah, all right. Trust you as well, mate. And then Tories' overall calls for public inquiry into cash for questions. Uh, yeah, still also trust you. Let's, let's vote for you again. Then the Queen was in Russia visiting Boris Yeltsin, who uh, is a great friend of the show. Um, no indication of what they drank. I hope he got out his best bottle of 20 quid Glenmorangi. But then they had the line that made me laugh where it said, the Queen confessed to only a scant acquaintance with Russian literature. Um, I don't know if she's more into uh, James Joyce and uh, some of the Scottish masters. I mean, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, on TV that night, what you could also have watched was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, or Oddballs. Eamon Holmes introduces a lighthearted excursion through unforeseen sporting moments. I do remember that, actually, yeah. Surely all recorded, because uh, Holmes would have been making... He would have been at Old Trafford that night, wouldn't he? 
Uh, one, which was funny actually because that was on the other side and then you also had Ian Wright visits Alaska also on, the, on uh, Channel 4 I think that was which again you would think that Ian Wright visits Alaska you might be hoping for the football crowd but yeah. that, was, that, was, that was when it was on yeah. but one of the things I also noticed was that the football was advertised on the front page of the Times as the match of the season which even at that point wasn't quite something that you saw that often No, I mean a lot of the broadsheets at that point were still Maybe not, maybe not so much time anymore. The Telegraph, but it was still like f- football. Like obviously, so much of the population liked it, but it still wasn't quite the mass media event that it is now. Where it just we know it. I suppose because we have internet numbers and everything else, we know it drives so much, so much of how media moves more than almost anything in culture. Yeah, I think there was also still that little bit of snobbery about football yeah. that yeah. it wasn't it wasn't worthy, which is something that they. I mean, as often happens that they'd got to the bottom of in Europe like 50, 50 years before where football was discussed in coffee shops and coffee houses in the same way people would discuss history and philosophy and culture. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we, we have that now. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we definitely didn't have that then. So how about, uh, Barcelona obviously were known as the dream team. Have you take us through the Barcelona team, who, what, what they were about? What Saki did in 89 and what Cruyff went on to do with Barcelona... They're from the same principles, and they're both obviously influenced by Ajax in the seventies. But they did; they, there was a variation, particularly given how how Barcelona were based in possession. And again, this is of course a forerunner to everything that Guardiola did fifteen years later. Uh, but even for the time, and given this was still a, a world of a kind of a fairly straight four four two, maybe occasionally four three three. Although I did read something with Fer- Ferguson arguing that he never played a straight four four two, which I think is which I think is certainly arguable. Uh, Guardiola, you know, Cruyff's formation is almost like one of, one of those, you know, <laughs> intricate Guardiola formations. Fifteen years ahead of his time, and that's two at the back. The full the, the fullbacks are basically wingers, which is why on the night I think uh, Luis Enrique is, is so struggles with uh, with Lee Sharp, uh, and then it's of course Guardiola and Koeman, Even though one of them is supposed to be a centre half, are basically both in there as pivots with Bacero then as a playmaker, and then the front three of Romario Stoichkov and current city director, uh, Chiqui Gierasoin. And of course, what stands out about that as well is the team. I mean, of course, it's the amount of Spanish, Basque, Catalans on it because there was the three foreigner rule at the time. Uh, and it's, it is remarkable given the perceptions of, of clubs like Barcelona and Real Madrid now, uh, although we, we might begin, be beginning to see a bit of a fallow period, just how they just weren't a star studded. I mean, it, 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 I mean, this was actually better for European football as a whole because it meant squads couldn't, or big clubs couldn't hoard talent. But yeah, I mean, one of the things I did notice was that um, I mean, they had uh, Busquets Busquets in goal, who uh, Jimmy Greaves would always call Mister Biscuits, and mm-hmm. um, I'm not quite sure why he was playing. I guess uh, Zubi Zareta, uh, who always made me laugh because uh, Zubi means uh, Willy in Hebrew, but Zubi Zareta must have been injured. And uh, Haji couldn't get in because of the foreigners' rule. Yeah. Um, and so the first I actually well, knew Loudrup of Haji... Was gone because of it as well. Loudrup had gone to Madrid that summer in yeah, kind of, and, the Figo move. The first I knew of Haji was, I think, when... I mean, he played a little bit against England, but I don't think I really noticed. And then in Brian Robson's soccer annual of 1989, Brian Robson was asked to pick his best world eleven of 1989, and Haji was in it. Um, I would say, do you think... who could, Can you guess who was in this team? But it was quite a bizarre team, so I actually called my dad and got him to write it down for me. Um, and it had Shilton in nets, then Amaros at right back, Amaros spelt incorrectly, uh, Jose Lewis Brown, Hussein centre-backs, Cabrini at left back, then the midfield was Bagney, Robson, Khulit and Haji, and then Maradona and Brichiguenio. 
I mean, it's not bad. <laughs> it's it's not bad, but I, th- I mean, I had to look up who Bagney was. I'd forgotten, and you and then Hussein also. I mean, I guess he was sort of yeah. quite good. It was just before he went and because um, United tried to buy him, and he ended up at Liverpool and made a total pig's ass of it all. Yeah, yeah. Just at that point where it was kind of moving from uh, Dalglish to Sunes. And it was so yeah. They didn't quite get the succession right, in ter- not in terms of the manager, but even in terms of kind of the players that were coming through. And then the United team, as you say, uh, uh, Fergie left out Bruce because Paul Parker was kind of famous as a marker. But as it turned out, he, he basically he only started three times that season. And um, this was one of those times. And Fergie always had that gambler's instinct. And in his, it was only in his later days, as in Wenger was the same really, that as they start, as people get older, they start to think about legacy a bit more, and they start to, and that means when you start thinking about legacy, you're thinking about protecting stuff, and they become much more conservative. But United team that night was uh, Schmeichel, then May at right back, who was the only addition to a team that won the league by eight points. Parker Palace to Irwin, then a midfield five with Kanchelskis, Butt, Keane, Ince, and Sharp, and Hughes up front on his own. Um, Giggs was they hoped he'd play, but he wouldn't. Cantona was obviously still suspended from Galatasaray. And there was some quite interesting avant-garde numbering because it was 1-11. to Butt was wearing number five. Kanchelskis number seven. Keane number nine. And Sharp number 11. And Sharp had actually played, still played left back. Which always, we just, and I, I, that always struck me as, a, I didn't like it because it's, of everything Keane was, a number nine wasn't a number that suited him. No, 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 it wasn't. I mean, and Sharp didn't suit number five, but that was his squad number. And yeah. Butt was wearing that and Sharp was wearing 11. It was it was all kind of strange. I mean, Barcelona had some weird numbers as well. I think um, Enrique was, wear, was wearing seven. Yeah, Nadal was wearing nine at under half. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I yeah, it was all like, but, which made me think also about Barcelona's kit, which was just this very early 90s shade of, I don't know what shade would you call it, a kind of, it wasn't quite a lime green, but it wasn't no, a yeah. green either. There was a hint of neon about it as well. Yeah, and United, it was just, it was a mess basically, because it had other colours all over it, whereas United, I think this is my favourite of the kind of the 90s United home kits, well, the, the, the one with Old Trafford on it. was how, how, how rich the red looked in rain and under lights, and which, yeah. which really lent to those occasions as well. It was because if you compare it to Liverpool Red, Liverpool Red has a little bit more brown, rust, orangey in it. It's a bit, it's a kind of off red, which is funny, really, when you consider, um, um, what's her name? I've now forgotten where my, my own joke about off red and um, the Margaret Atwood book uh, and cults and something like that. But um, anyway, um, and Old Trafford was also at that point was still a perfect bowl. And they get these incredible aerial shots of it. And you kind of forget about the Champions League branding as well, where the size of the advertising hoardings mean you have to let in fewer supporters because they can't see from the first few rows, which in some ways sort of just sums up the worst aspects of the Champions League. Yeah. Although even then, it did feel the kind of whole iconography about it was a little bit subtler and almost added to kind of uh, the mystique of the occasion. I mean, I used to love those, the fact that they changed the badges on the, uh, on the shirt sleeves from obviously the Premier League ones to in the Champions League. And there were those massive stars, the Champions League stars, to denote they were yeah. in the position. And, I mean, whoever decided... It sounds so stupid to say that the Champions League anthem, that even such a thing should exist. But the Champions League anthem is just it's just a fucking tune. Yeah, it works so well. Uh, it really... You just, and again, it lends that sense of occasion. And just when I, when I was watching it before coming on, even like just, just a little clip of, uh, of Ferguson talking about the game as a kind of... 
the music fades out and the <laughs> unreal. It is almost almost cinematic. Yeah, I mean, it's just it. You know, it's just it sets you exactly in a time and a place, and it means forget about everything else because what's happening right here is the most important thing that's happening anywhere in the world. The kind of the pomp and circumstance yeah. works. Well, and what's probably key to that is actually that it's based on an actual piece of classical music rather than trying to get some composer to do it now. So it just, it just has that extra depth of history and gravitas that it feels appropriate for the competition as the most pre- prestigious in club football. Yeah, it just, yeah, it just, it tells you, it, it just, it works. It's just like, it's the best kind of advertising jingle almost. So anyway, the game kicks off and United actually, United start really well. And I think that was often the method of the English clubs. And I mean, it worked really well for United a lot in, through 99. It worked for Liverpool in 2005 also, where you kind of try and blow the opposition away before they've had a chance to settle into the passing. Yeah, totally. And again, a lot of that comes down through, um, through England. Some of, the, some of the kind of pieces of play, they just keep standing out, are either Sharp or Konchelskis. More, more Sharp on this night, even though Konchelskis had a better season that year. But on this, I suppose one of the bigger games of the season, it is sharp that really stands out, and they just they keep pinning Barca back through, and keep pinning the Barca fullbacks, who I suppose Cruyff would have wanted as wingers, and especially given Luis Enrique is there, who he could play almost everywhere. But they kept pinning them back, and, and yeah, as you say, it was almost like it, it was almost like a team who may, 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 there might have been an element of calculation of this, given that they probably they they weren't up to Barcelona's level yet, but using the swell of emotion from the occasion of a big European night. To use that to her advantage, and and the and the style of football almost directly following from the emotion of the crowd, which is you know a stirring attack. Yeah, they. I mean, on three minutes, Kanchelskis screeches down the right. At halftime, Venables says um, he spun him into the ground, talking about Sergi or how what veterans of Championship Manager will know as uh, Bajou and Sergi. Oh, I even play Championship Manager, and I somehow have picked up that piece of information, but. It was looking because looking at the team before, I wondered if uh, Sharp might play slightly behind Hughes, but it became very clear very quickly that United's plan was to for the wingers to stay wide and Button Keen to try and help Hughes. And yeah, well, I think Hughes... Keen was almost more advanced as well. The Keen was almost playing close to a ten roll at times. Well, actually, just when you mentioned Venables there, what also I found almost slightly odd about the game. All right, Keegan and Ferguson weren't in direct competition at that point. Because Newcastle were kind of an up, you know, they'd only recently been promoted the season before, but they did lead the table at the, in that early stage, ninety four, ninety five season. I think that they yeah, were, they were top at the time. Yeah, it's a bit odd to have one of Ferguson's rivals in that sense commentating on a on one of their big nights. And, and you know, yeah, I actually thought of you because um, on six minutes, Keegan, who I kind of thought is Keegan, almost the worst possible person to analyze this game because he. Yeah, I mean, analysis ultimately just wasn't really his thing, but also the way that Barcelona play. But and there was a good uh, on six minutes. There was a good uh, error reference from Keegan, which I know is one of your favourites. <laughs> but yeah, what's also funny is that the previous night Newcastle have played Bilbao and they were three 0 up and they end up winning three two. And Keegan says we committed a little bit of suicide afterwards. <laughs> yeah, seemed uh, like yeah, yeah. There's a few times in this game where he has a few. Um... Uh, he mangles his phrases a little bit, and one of those I think is for the uh, for the first goal actually, when he talks of sharp, um, he, he has to correct himself repeatedly about sharp. This is the first time he's done it all night. Well, he's done it a few times tonight, which is, which is beating Luis Enrique, but but then of course getting the cross in for use. 
Yeah, he then so he then goes on Keegan and he call, he says that Stoich cover Romario are moody and th- says that if United get in front, it could be an easy game. <laughs> and you're just kind of thinking, hang on. Number one, you've just referenced Romario and Stoich cover. Number two, your team was three 0 up yesterday and yeah. they ended up winning three two. Is I mean, it's very it's very strange because you still do kind of have that whole English football thing where. It hasn't quite sunk in yet that things aren't the same everywhere. Yeah, true. And I suppose that must have been odd. I mean, for especially for someone like Keegan, I suppose, who'd been in, been in Europe, won a European Cup with Liverpool, maybe still carrying a certain perception in that sense that carried through. Yeah, that the game, the game, the game hasn't really changed that much, and he was still his teams were still just going forward and worrying, not really worrying about what the opposition might do, but. I mean, quite quickly, I mean, even quite early on in the game, uh, Stoichkov has um, Schmeichel scrabbling to make a save. And then he has a, gives his defence a proper going over. And I kind of, the thing I mainly thought was, how on earth was he allowed to get away with that hair for that long? I, I, I say that as someone who had various <laughs> sets of curtains and undercuts and all the rest of the mid-90s behaviour. It's quite, it's quite a scraggy, scraggy long blonde hair at the, black as well, at the back as well. I think it's a brush back. Yeah. I, I, th- I think he's just got extremely long curtains, and he's kind of and he's kind of slicked and back. Oh, oh, true. And, and it's like you know, I don't know if anyone ever said this to you, but when someone's telling you off, imagine them taking a dump. And I kind of feel that Schmeichel's hair is a bit like that. Like, how is Paul Parker meant to take Peter Schmeichel seriously when he's wearing that haircut? I don't know. <laughs> but the other thing I thought about when I was thinking about United's defence is Bruce and Pallister. I mean, my Bruce was, was on the bench, got 22 England caps between them, and Pallister got all of them. Which yeah. kind of tells you how what good England defend, what good defenders England had at the time. Yeah. But then you wonder as well, was it like, is there an element of belligerence? In, like in the modern game, eventually the, the, the international manager would, would try the champion's regular starter. Whereas, I mean, it's not even like Bruce, all right, He's into his thirties by then, but he's not that old. Like he could, he, and it's amazing they just didn't bring him in even to try him or as an option. Um, that always struck. Yeah, me. I mean, I, I guess England, as if it was said very early on that uh, Bruce is not an international defender for England, and that's that, which is obviously nonsense, given he was one of the best defenders in the Premier League. Uh, although he did, he did try and declare for Ireland that some Jack Charlton made a really heavy push. Error, you mean? Error, of course. Yeah, so <laughs> error. Error made a very strong push to get him. <laughs> Uh, for the 94 World Cup. Uh, and, of course, when Ferguson found out, he was livid because it would have complicated the situation for Europe and games like this because yes. he had to be an, an assimilated player along with Dennis Irwin. They were allowed two assimilated and three... Assimilated foreigners. Oh, my yeah. God. What a load of bollocks that was. And I think there's, there's a story, I think, one, it was first told by um, uh, Paul Doyle at The Guardian, who, who interviewed Bruce about it. And he, he, him being just sat there in Fergie's office as he lit, as he watched Ferguson ranting down the phone at Jack Charlton, could hear Jack Charlton ranting back. You know, one of the one of the great debates or <laughs> between that must have been a legendary set too. Yeah, and I, I think it ended with something like, uh, you know, Fergie just slamming the phone down. Right, Bruce. All right, are you, are you a Paddy or not? No, boss. it's funny really because I mean Bruce almost it is weird that he never played for England or got picked in a squad but you could say that in Tony Adams they had a better version of Bruce at the time but um, Des Walker was was mainly his partner but it's surprising that Pallister never got a go I mean and you watch him through this game the way he brings the ball out of defence and he's just that rare combination of someone 
who will lose nothing in the air and also has some good ability on the ball and some good pace. Yeah. Um, but then Brian Moore, Brian Moore talks about the terrific tempo United have set as well as the game, as United really start to take over and um, Sharp in particular is, uh, is getting down the left almost every time he tries to get down there. And then they almost score on 17 minutes when Sharp veers away from two men and overhits his cross. Then Kanchalskis nails Sergi on the other side and Hughes can't quite reach his cross and Kuma manages to get in there. And I mean, Kuman, I, 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 I was struggling. Oh, this, this is why I used to love Sharp as a player. He was so exciting. And he said, oh, oh, he should, and then why didn't he make more of himself? And then I saw the cross, which was, for a player of his ability, is spectacularly bad at that cross. Give, give it, <laughs> but he absolutely balloons it. Um, and I suppose there was always that element of a little bit of a radical, and it's about Sharp. Yeah, I think the thing with Sharp was more that also that if you played Sharp, then you had to play Giggs on the right. Yeah. And because United had those options, they they didn't they didn't have to do that. Sharp also seemed to be, I mean, he was he was a good player. He was also a bit of a streaky player. Yeah. So if he if he was on, then you picked him. But because you had options, if he wasn't on, then you then you picked Kanchelskis and Giggs. But. What Sharp was good at was he didn't quite have the he was quick he was quick enough he didn't quite have the pace that the other two had but he was he was direct and he was strong so if he got if he if he ran down the left it would take something quite significant to stop him and in that first season where United won the league he sort of him and Rick Holden became known as the kings of the assists because it was one that like, maybe the first season the fantasy league but he didn't quite have the electrifying pace of the other two and he didn't have Kanchelski sort of had his level of directness and was quicker and more of a goal threat. And Giggs had a bit more of the trickery, but I kind of watching it, I almost felt like I'd forgotten how, how good Sharp was. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. And as we're going to talk about, I mean, he had even allowing for crosses like that. He had a very influential, you know, he was probably the most influential player on the pitch really in terms of his contribution to uh, its key moments as well. Yeah, I think what you see, because we're coming up to the first goal, is that Fergie did, I mean, Fergie nailed his tactics that night in the first instance. Yeah. Where he was able to not lose a numbers game in midfield and stretch them and, and threaten goal and, yeah. and threaten to score. United, United could have scored before they did. But uh, do you want to take us through the goal? Yeah, well, again, it's basically, it's something that happened happening. I mean, it's been foreshadowed by pretty much all the play that we've seen Uh Sharp beats his man. I think it's Luis Enrique again, and finally gets his cross absolutely right. And it's it's very like actually, the goal reminded me a lot of. It's used with the header, of course, and a lot is made about how he used to play for Barca, the two goals, ninety one, all the rest of it. But actually, the goal reminded me a lot of Hughes's goal against Leeds United, ninety one, ninety two, in I think it was the FA Cup in that trip the cup. Game, yeah, I think the FA I got a head brace that day. It was gigs with the cross that night. Whereas this is Sharp, and there's a little bit more wing play from Sharp in terms of kind of beating his man. Like, it is a classic piece of wing play. Um, yeah, yeah get it, getting it across. Uh, but uh, you might call it a classic United goal at that point as well. Yeah, I mean, because what happens actually, even before that, is uh, Pallister plays a good long ball, and there's a, there's a one-touch layoff from Hughes. That, and Hughes is obviously famous for the volleys and for being hard. But what he also had was probably the best first touch I've ever seen any player have there's an amazing video on youtube that i've probably mentioned before because it's so good mark hughes for manchester united i think it's called it's about 15 minutes of hughes and obviously it's got the volleys but it's it's the first touch the ability to control the ball when it comes at you from any height and either keep it 
or knock it off in one touch. And this yeah. time he knocks it off and then Ince bursts onto it and uh, he gets a kind of lanky leg away from the defender that sets Sharp away. But you reminded me, when you mentioned Hughes' goal against Leeds, it reminded me of one, reminded me of one of the most traumatic nights of my childhood because the day that he scored that goal against Leeds, I got a head brace. <laughs> one of these things, I had these, I had these buck teeth and... Yeah. What a head brace does is you put it, it doesn't go actually over your head, it goes around your neck. And you get these uh, things fixed to your Newtons and you, you with holes in them and you poke in the head brace, a hole on either side. And what it does is it pulls your side teeth away so that there's then room for your buck, your buck front teeth to go back. So I'm wearing this head brace and there's a knock at the door and I forgot that I'm wearing the head brace. And um, at the door is two or three of the older kids from school who are doing some charity collection. And I'm stood there at the front door in my fucking head brace. <laughs> and obviously it then reaches school the next day. And yeah, that was that was extremely traumatic for me. But then and and Hughes obviously heads the he gets up above Kuman, who I mean Kuman is just a remarkable player, and we see what a remarkable player he is tonight. I looked up yeah. his stats and he had 194 career goals in 535 games for a centre back. That is that's absolutely ridiculous. It is amazing given um that he was predominantly considered uh, a defender when really he was a deep lying playmaker. Yeah, and I mean it's kind of a, it's a kind of a strange thing because that position was so popular in European football at that time. Like Laurent Blanc played there, um, then Sammer would play there, and it just doesn't exist anymore. Really, are there are there any players like that around now? Well, I suppose the thing about it is the qualities of that position have now become kind of subsumed into what a centre half is, and like given you know everyone has to be some way ball playing. So it's kind of morphed into something else. But, well, I mean, the thing about that goal as well is what really... I mean, Hughes destroys Koeman in the air. Uh, but as well, what really adds to the aesthetic of the goal that I liked was the fact that Busquets is going one way as the cross comes in and then has to kind of try and scramble back and can't get anywhere near Hughes' header, which just adds to the kind of the sweeping nature of the goal. Yeah, he ends up basically doing a handstand because of that, like because he's tried to do what Rick Stewart from uh, Roy the Rovers used to do, the mid the midair twist, and he, he just ends up basically going headfirst into the ground, and then it's a goal by Mark Hughes, a super strike for Manchester United. <laughs> Says Brian Moore. Like, such a the game's just as well. I think mean, like it wasn't so much what Moore said; it was more the energy he added. He, like he really did give something to those European knights the, the way he commentated, but, but like. So, so, so some of the kind of uh, some of the phrases he used were almost uh, in, indulgently childlike in that way against uh, a super strike. What he says actually later on is um, quite shortly afterwards he says, "Wow, this is a game." Yeah, yeah. And it's just like when you hear such an august figure as Brian Moore, t- like reassuring you that what you're seeing is as brilliant as you think it is. There's just a level of satisfaction of understanding the game and like you have a feeling for what you're experiencing. And he's, and he's kind of, it's almost like he's narrating you through a trip where yeah. he, where he's not like, he's, cause he's not one like Barry Davis was very about delivering b- beautiful lines. And, and Brian Moore wasn't really about that. He was just about conveying the emotion of the occasion. Yeah. I mean, he says later on, like just, just right after the goal, he says, um, uh, he says at the moment, Barcelona haven't time to breathe, never mind time to play. And it's just like, boom, you've absolutely summed up these 22 minutes. There it is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, we've also, I mean, what we're seeing is also Ince is absolutely dominating midfield. And he's someone who often gets forgotten about when we talk about great players of the Premier League era and great midfield players. But I can't think of many who are as good as him. 
There are so many instances. What actually makes the match, and it certainly makes one of the key incidents later, is in as as Moore says, driving away or just kind of suddenly bursting from the middle. And of course, in the return game of this, which is one of the most famous defeats in United's history, Ferguson goes apoplectic about Ince's uh, insistence on doing that when he wanted him to be a holding player. And I suppose it's it's uh, you know that, that that was the famous night where. You know, Ferguson gets right right up and into his face and go and tells him, "You are a fucking bottler." And you know, there and almost around then, basically decides, or, or at least the thinking starts that he's going to sell Ince. And, and I think because of that, and because the United went on to achieve, it does feel like Ince's play. And of course, the fact he played for Liverpool, let's not forget, it does feel as if Ince's place has been a little bit for, for, for overlooked or forgotten about when he really was. He, he, he I think. When you think of that 92 to 94 team, obviously by 94 95 was actually a little bit, it ended up being almost a transition season between two eras, uh, especially given the introduction of so many young players by the end of this Champions League campaign. A lot of them played against Galatasaray in the 4 0 home win. Uh, but you saw so with 92 94, that, that, that team is basically testosterone fueled its aggression. And Ince was as, you know, as key to that as any other player. I mean, he was also, he was brilliant in um, 91, 92 as well. Um, from, I'd say from those 91, 92 to the end of this season, he was the best midfield player in the country. But even in just the Premier, Premier League era, I mean, Keane and Vieira, the only two I can think of that were of his level. I mean, when you, th- like, I guess Liverpool, the Liverpool of now, quite a good comparison because that's the kind of player that they had. But he was a better player than Henderson and Wijnaldum, as far as I can see it. There's, um, more, there's more to his game. I mean, I suppose what, what players like Henderson and Wijnaldum do, they're given very specific roles and it's about fulfilling those roles rather than being all-round midfielders in the way Ince was, or certainly Ince wanted to be. But then it was also, it was a much more free-form game in 94. Like, I think football is so much more regimented now and it's so much more tactical. And, you know, every position on the pitch has such, uh, certainly at the top teams anyway, has such a set of tactical demands. And in, 90, in 94, that wasn't really true. I mean, because, of course, we're, we're in the era of uh, dominant strikers. And part of that was, like, even across the... The Premier League was dominated by, what, like, Andy Cole, Collie Moore, Wright, Ferdinand, Shearer, Fowler. And these players were so key to their teams because all, the burden of all the creativity and attacking play was almost on them because it was just such a... It, it was a much more lazy, fair approach to football. It's funny because the, the way I look at this Liverpool team is actually not dissimilar to that United team because the creativity comes from out wide and the midfield players are more about making sure you have enough of the ball to to kind of to dominate to dominate the game. And uh, I'm not sure that it's so much like so. I know that Liverpool are very tactical in the way that they the way they try and win, win back possession, but otherwise it seems quite simple. Like that they. They want, they're going to outrun. They're going to outrun and outpower any team in the middle of the midfield. Get the ball wide, and the fullbacks are going to supply the creativity, and the inside forwards are going to score the goals. So I don't know if it's so much about you have to be here and be there. It just seems to be quite technical about the way that they want to try and win the ball back. But after that, the way that, the way that they play football is quite similar. It's, it's quite simple and quite similar to what we've seen before and not that dissimilar to the way that we see this team play. Yeah, I mean, I think with Liverpool, it was much, I mean, from the way I've had it explained to me from who were the Premier League coaches, it's, it, it is very defined. Well, and that's, I mean, it's not the Liverpool of this season right now, but it's, it, it's about 
four players, the two fullbacks and the two number eights, which would usually be uh, Fabinho and Henderson, creating a line that basically hems in the opposition 30 yards from goal and creates, creates constant bounce back so, the, uh, so, the, so the, the forwards can get onto it. Whereas I suppose with United, it was, with this United, it was more about these two winning the ball, wherever that may be in the pitch, and setting the, the, the wingers free. Uh, and I, I think there was a lot more back and forth with this United in, in that sense. And, and I suppose even though they weren't a counter-attacking team, so many of their great goals were counter-attacks because they just had the weapons for it. I think that, uh, that, is, that counter-attack is probably Fergie's most significant contribution to football tactics, that the ability to score when you're defending a corner. I mean, obviously, he wasn't the first person to do it, but it was the first time that that became something we saw over and over and over again. And I always felt like you could draw, not not a straight line, but a line or whatever between this United team, between Wenger's first Arsenal team and between this this Liverpool team. And they're kind of one, like, one is a they refinement and a refinement. And it's not saying that one is better than is better than is better and they're constantly improving, but there were teams that, always kind of reminded me of each other in the way that they went about trying to win the ball and try and kind of bully you physically, giving a platform to the the more skillful players that they had that were more skillful than your skillful players and did that by stretching the play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, back to back to this game. United then almost score again. Um, There's another beautiful one touch layoff from Hughes. And then we see and, you're not necessarily going to think you're hearing this correctly, a beautiful step over from Roy Keane, where he sends Romario off for a bag of bolo and then plays his pass inside Sergi and Kanchelskis crosses and Nadal back heels the cross away. But I think, yeah, it's one of those things where you see Roy Keane do that. Like he almost forget that he, that he could do almost everything that you might require to do on a football pitch. He, he was very much an all-round player who's just happened to be, his, his aggression just for many people... Uh, entirely coloured perceptions of him, but especially as he developed in his career. I mean, one of the things I most remember about the latter few years of his career was the kind of inch-perfect passing. Yeah, the passing was was unbelievable, even when he was at his peak, the hard, fast, short passing that's get an attack going. But the the step over, because my favourite Roy Keane move, the signature Roy Keane move to me is always when he gets the ball in a difficult situation, he's got a man up his arse, and he gets the ball on the outside of his foot and he turns with the ball never leaving the outside of his foot. And that's how he used to beat a man. It was kind of an extension of that. But what's really happened is that in this first half hour, it's basically been almost perfect performance from United. But then on the, in 32 minutes, they almost score again. And it sort of changes from there, where Sharp goes down the left. He plays a great ball into Hughes, and he misses with his first time left-footed finish. Yeah. I think the cross is just a little bit close to his body, so he's not coming onto it. But you, it's one of those where you would expect him to score. And at halftime, Dennis Law is surprised he hasn't taken it with the outside of his right foot. Yeah, I mean, there was often a bit of a sense of this with United in those European games as well. Uh, they're almost playing to such a frenetic level, particularly in the home games. They played to such a frenetic level that it maybe cost them a little bit in terms of precision. And it, and it was something that came up time and again in those European games. That, you know, there was a real energy to United, but they, they, they lacked the clinical nature that would often see them flounder against sides like Juventus and and Monaco or... For, yeah, well, Hughes. Hughes was a brilliant player, but he wasn't he wasn't a brilliant finisher. Yeah. He was a scorer of great goals and a scorer of humongous goals, but he wasn't he wasn't a great goal scorer. And he... But this this was one that he should have scored. And then three minutes later, 
Kuman has basically, over the course of the previous few minutes, Kuman has been getting more involved in the play. And then he basically gets sends a pass past Ince into Bacaro. And um, and then, yeah, do you want to describe the, the, the equaliser? I mean, watching it again, I was thinking you, you couldn't think of just a more a classic Barca goal era, a classic kind of Spanish era football goal. Uh, which is just the absolute crisp passing, angle passing. Kuman eventually works it through Baquero. And I mean, Baquero is almost a classic of what we're talking about in terms of the star, in terms of the stars of Spurs team. And that, you know, in, in, within five years when they got rid of the foreigner rule, it would have been a Rivaldo or a Figo occupying that position. Now it's a kind of a Spanish midfielder who's been a little bit forgotten, but had pretty much all the tools you'd expect of a, of a modern Spanish midfielder. You know, uh, kind of intricately works his way into the United half, plays an angle pass that Romario gets, it, it completely, it, it stretches Parker and forces Schmeichel to come out and Romario is just in there in that classic Romario way and slots it between Schmeichel's leg. It's, it, it's a beautiful, beautifully worked goal. Yeah, I mean, because what's happened is you can see that uh, Romario gets a run on Parker, but Parker thinks it's all right because they're playing offside and you can see just in the corner May stepping up when he knows yeah. he's stepping he knows he's played him on side and he's just he's keeping up appearances and trying to do his best but so Schmeichel rushes out and it's, you kind of you've seen this goal before um, I remember Hasselbank scoring one against him in 98-99 in where he comes out and I wondered if Schmeichel might have stayed and because obviously as a goalkeeper you know like goalkeepers always come out to narrow the angle and but if he stays then he's actually asking Romario to do quite a lot more than either get it through him or get it past him. Because if he gets it through him or past him, it's a goal. But if you stay on your line at that point, and I always think of the Edmundo goal for Vasco against United when he does that turn, the only reason he's able to score after the turn is because Bosnich comes out and he just has to poke it. If Bosnich stays on his line, he's then got to do something to beat him. And I always, I kind of felt with this one, if Schmeichel stayed, then... It, he's set and it would actually take quite a good shot to beat him. Whereas here, he's right there and once it's through his legs, nothing can do about it. I mean, I suppose it was always kind of cast as, as Schmeichel's one potential weakness. But I mean, it was part of his strength as well. It was how quickly he came off his line and make things small for attackers. Although you could also argue that's why he was often chipped so much as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you take with, with football, with most things in football, you add something to one part and you lose something in the other part. And it is exactly that. But I just felt like maybe Schmeichel's style saved him there. Yeah. And then I guess for the rest of the first half is then quite even. And Keegan says, um, when you see games like this and hear about European Super League, it really does make your mouth water. <laughs> and he's so right and so wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, but I'm, I'm, and there's also the fact, I mean, something has been long discussed, if a European Super League did happen, it wouldn't have the peril of these games. I mean, yes. look at the way the Champions League has developed. And it's a treat. The point of this game is that, yeah, I think like sometimes you want a knee trembler in an alleyway and other times you want the Kama Sutra. It's just, and this is meant to be something that you, that you see sometimes, but not all the time. And it is, it's like him saying that is again, it just, it's really affirming because it's reminding you how much you love football and how much they love football. Yeah. But ultimately football is too affirming for its own good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's literally it. And all the only thing now is that it took people as long as it took them to realize that if you want to, connect with people across borders and across religions and across races, then football is your person. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and certainly 
prompted by this era as well. I, I genuinely think football now crosses more borders than any other cultural pursuit. I mean, obviously, yeah, for sure, something more fundamental like music goes further. But I would say football is kind of more universally loved than M- music can be regional still. Exactly. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I haven't. If you go, like, I mean, the the, the place where if you go, I've been driving around in Ghana, for example. I remember uh, first time I went to Ghana, my wife and I were driving. We went to her mum's village, so it wasn't somewhere remotely urban. And we stopped on the way to watch United and Fulham um, in a village with people full of football kits. The, the game where United were the penalty in the last minute and Giggs is about to take it and it's two all. And Nanny says, I'll take it. And misses. in like what was very classic Nanny of the time. But there's, there's no, especially now where in the era of this game and in earlier eras, we had so many musical megastars, Prince, Bowie, Michael Jackson, um, so on. Whereas now we basically have Beyonce. That's it. We're not in that era of me- musical megastars anymore, where musical is crossing borders in quite the same way. And it is. It's 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 football. Football's taken over the world, and that's why you have people that want to avoid death or people that want to cover human rights abuses deciding that they'll buy football clubs because there's nothing like it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and in fact, the music has really gone the other direction, and that it's become much more. Um, audience specific as well and kind of almost its worlds have become a little bit smaller whereas football yeah. grown in that sense and I mean I often think of it in, in terms of the modern Champions League especially when you get to the latter stages of of of, um, of the competition and the quarterfinal especially with some of the kind of the huge comebacks and dramas of the past few years where it's become like just high quality prime time television that way the, the only the only show that matters in a lot of midweek nights Yes, and I think what you also football has retained somehow more than music actually is its regional variation. Like if you like, you go to other countries and you see that like the kids are, tend to dress in roughly the same way. They're listening to roughly the same stuff, and whereas football, you're still getting regional variations of the way people, way Italian teams play, the way German teams play, the way Spanish teams play, the way English teams play. I mean, City's Guardiola um, are an exception to the rule, but. Klopp's Liverpool, for example, have retained a lot of what is best about English football and a lot of what is best about Klopp's German football. And it's this, it's kind of this melting pot that still has its own regional identity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Then um, just before half time, Koeman sprays another tremendous pass and Keegan says he might be the best passer he's ever seen. And I remember reading Rob Hughes's preview of the game. He said his ability to strike 50 yard right footed passes through opponents defences is in many ways the pivot of Cruyff's strategy, which is kind of interesting. And it's sort of basically saying that Cruyff's strategy only works if you have this one off. (laughs) Well, that has happened with, with so many teams like that. I mean, I mean, just when you described that, what immediately came to mind was uh, was remarkably the way Ederson passes a ball uh, for City and the way he suddenly stretches it, stretches defence like that. You could also like, the, the same could be applied with, with Van Dyke. Well, Van Dyke, you could, yeah, I guess there are other players, but Ederson is a, is a good example of a one-off. A coach told a friend of mine actually that the only goalkeeper whose ability on the ball makes any serious difference to the way a team's able to play is Ederson. So then it's one referee blows on the second, on the 45th minute for half time. And they, um, they, have, a, they have a quiz um, on, on the ITV coverage. Who scored Barca's goal when they won the Champions League? And the, which is, yeah, which is, which is Koeman. When my, my mate was a ball boy at that game. We lived locally to Wembley. We lived in a place called Kenton that was near Wembley. So they asked the local scout troop 
uh, to send someone, they sent him because he was the fastest runner. And it kind of made me wonder if it was worth being in the scouts to get to be a ball boy at Barcelona Sampdoria in the European Cup final. And the funny thing is about this guy is uh, he's now a rabbi, which is to say he was in the rabbi and the scouts, which he likes uh, strange dogma and dressing up, I suppose, which is what that tells us about him. It won't surprise anyone to hear that he was also in the school CCF. And then um, Venables at <laughs> halftime is obviously loving this game. And he says it was sensational. And um, Den- Dennis Law was also there. And he is the only person I've interviewed and asked for an autograph because he was my dad's hero. So I got him to sign a shirt for my, my dad's 70th. Um, but I was like, I actually yeah, yeah. found it quite emotional meeting the king just because he's... Have you, have you ever asked anyone you've interviewed for an autograph or a photo? The, the only person I've done it, funny enough, was, just, was uh, Johan Cruyff. Uh, and I remember, I remember kind of, I, did, I interviewed him about, this is 2013, so three years before he died. Um, and I spent about 40 minutes with him. It was great. And then I, I, even during the interview, it was on my mind, is it unprofessional to ask this? And then kind of the guy who set it up kind of did, did go to me, look, it's, it's <laughs> Johan Cruyff. It's a legend. You, you don't, you don't regularly, if this, this is one yeah, job yeah, that's I mean, allowed. It's, it is one that's because you kind of, it's, it feels unprofessional. I mean, it is unprofessional, but it's Johan Cruyff. Well, but I also think that there's a bit of a difference in that perspective when you're doing something from a kind of a nostalgic history perspective rather than if you're a journalist who covers these people regularly. Because, I mean, obviously... Oh, you've say, got an excuse. It's a beautiful know. thing. You've got it all worked out. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Yeah, it's not... <laughs> I don't exactly. have to be um, impartial. I just have to appreciate and adore you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're interviewing, I don't know, like Mourinho today or whatever, a Solskjaer, going yeah. up at the end is like <laughs> critically of them or whatever. But in cases like this, I think it's a little bit different. And with truly kind of historic figures. And then before the second half starts, they have, they have forgotten that they used to have those interviews with the managers, which yeah. at the time I used to think this is absolutely ludicrous. But when I saw it, I thought, I would welcome this back. Yeah, especially to give an insight into the manager. And also, I suppose what, what is interesting is what they, what they don't say is what they do. Because I suppose they have to, they have to guard a certain amount. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it is quite... I mean, people often complain about the whole notion of shoving a camera in front of someone's face after they've just uh, endured something so emotional like, where they're not going to be thinking right. But it will still reveal a lot and makes a pretty compelling view. That's the fucking point. Like they're, they're emotional. Like they haven't got time to rehearse. You want to see yeah. a natural reaction. I mean, Ferg is quite composed. He says that um, I'm very pleased with them and that they've won it once and they should go and win it again in that classic footballing cliche. Yeah. But I mean, it's sort of a, a way that we still in this country haven't caught up with US sport. I think it's partly because US sport has a closed shop and one of the way they realise that to keep the circle of money yeah. going round and round and round they have to offer access because there's not as much jeopardy and winning yeah. is basically a rotor for the same reason. That If you support a team, you would almost definitely see them win the Super Bowl in your lifetime because that's how it works and that's how they keep the money going round. But they they offer a level of access that in England just we're totally suspicious of because they think that they'll look bad rather than they're making everything look more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Funny enough, actually, um, when the discussions were going on for Project Restart, uh, there were some who tried to bring in, who you know, obviously there was a lot of back and forth about the kind of the contracts and you know the broadcasters, they whether would do rebates, and they they there was a discussion over whether they could do exactly this, which is put cameras in dressing rooms in the way the uh, the American sports do, but uh, the Big Six completely kiboshed it because they, obviously they see this as 
this this is stuff they can monetize themselves. Yeah. It's, it's their exclusive access. And monetized and sanitized, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But then anyway, the second half starts and Barcelona stop knocking it about. And I think you have that situation now where we see it still, where if you're a club that likes to get the ball forward quickly and you're playing a side that likes to control possession, you have to be extremely ruthless in your finishing because you don't get very many opportunities because you can hardly get on the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and their second goal was a proper lesson in European football. Yeah. And yeah, and it's just, it, it's a classic, especially the way Baccaro takes the, takes the chance. It's a classic example of uh, that, that momentary slip against a team of this quality and they will hurt you. Uh, and especially given the player, I mean, this I remember Keane talking about this in his um, in his first autobiography. And I, I don't want to do Bacero down because he's obviously a great player. I'm gonna you kind of emphasize the point of thinking that he's kind of he's been overlooked in football history. But when Keane was talking about say playing teams like Bayern Munich at this point, I know they wouldn't they wouldn't have the great Brazilians, but they'd have these top class or these kind of these professional Brazilians like you know Elber, like Paulo Sergio, and that like they just would do everything com- competently. And Vaquero feels like a classic example of that. Yeah, the finish is brilliant. Yeah, um, so the ball, Kuman plays a brilliant pass over Parker, who gets caught underneath it and is also not very tall. And Vaquero just takes it down his chest and it's just in the net before anyone's really even thought about what might be happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then after that, it kind of it gets a little bit scrappy after that because Barca, I think what's also happened is I would be amazed if Cruyff hasn't wondered why his team committed barely any fouls in the first half that every time Sharp gets away, there's a foul. Nadal, uh, Nadal fouls him and gets, gets booked and suspended for the new Camp. And then Keegan says he didn't mean it. And then he remembers that he said Leonardo didn't do anything to Tab Ramos in the World Cup. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then May goes in late on Stoichkov, gets booked, and he misses the return. And then, oh no, but at least he'll be back for Gothenburg away. I thought, uh, where he had one of one of the great nightmares. And quite shortly after that, Stoichkov tramples on his Achilles um, off, on the blind side of the ref and he gets stretched off, which has also felt like quite a nice assertion of status. Yeah, completely. Uh... Like, you boot me, I'm now going to yeah. make you sit at the side for a little while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then Skulls comes on for butt on 67 minutes, which is Skulls is sporting the French crop which is a, a, another classic haircut of the era with the, the fringe uh, the fringe brushed forward. Uh, a very popular haircut on the, the, the 29 and the 253 buses that I used to get in those days. <laughs> and United are 2-1 down, and at this point, they've never lost a European tie at home. I mean, that's, that's another element of, those, of all these games in the 90s, actually. The peril that hung over them because of the, the weight of history from that European record. Uh, it, it was every and even a lot of those games when they go out, there was always thinking, well, or, or they, you know, they didn't get the result they wanted. There was always a thing, oh, at least, at least the record was preserved. Like a classic example was actually Rotor Volgograd in the, the next season, the UEFA Cup, came back from two 0 down, draw two all, still go out. But I remember, big thing was, well, at least the record was preserved. And Schmeichel, remember, Schmeichel scored ahead of. Yeah, yeah, but I do remember Ferguson started going. It felt it, it felt like the record actually became a bit of a weight. Rather than something that, that was the strength, because of anything like that, because it would create this pressure that wasn't helpful, and maybe sometimes su- suppress the team a little bit. Yeah, and United they don't create as much. You can hear the crowd starting to get frustrated. Yordi comes on, and uh, Brian mm. Moore says he prefers to be known as Yordi and not the Cruyff Pro- party. Should be proud of the name, which I guess is a bit of a misunderstanding of the pressure that he must have felt. Yeah, 
I mean, to be the son of God in a Catalan perspective and a Dutch perspective. Yeah, <laughs> and someone who just changed the game so profoundly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Cruyff is probably pretty much the David Bowie of football in that sense, both a kind of a history-making figure in his own right and someone that influenced all, all of modern football. Everything that happened next, I mean, still still now. And um, I mean, he he, and that's what they said about him at United. I remember Phil Nev saying that he... He just couldn't. He couldn't handle the pressure. He wasn't yeah. a person. He wasn't the right kind of personality to exploit the, the talent that he had. I, I do remember hearing though that Ferguson did. I mean, I suppose this is natural enough. Ferguson greatly respected Yorty despite that, and would actually consult him on some kind of, you know, technicalities of games or certain tactical issues. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's classic Fergie. I mean, he's a massive history nut and a massive, yeah. massive football nut, hmm. but. And then on 80 minutes, basically, United finally equalised, and it is a brilliant goal. Yeah. And again, it comes from initially, he's actually one of my favourite pieces of commentary, that it's the classic Brian Moore growl in striving away. And the goal does, to be fair, it sort of comes from nothing. As you said, the game was petering out a bit of United. Then suddenly, Ince injects a bit of energy, winning, winning a tackle back. You know, surges down, flicks the ball through for the oncoming Keane, uh, and it, this this is key in his best sort of attacking play, which is you know that running himself puts in a, a nice pass for um, for Sharp, the one that's slightly beside him. And then there's a there's a classic thing with this goal. I mean, when it, I mean, I was 11 years old at the time. This goal absolutely blew my mind. I felt like the most inventive thing ever. Well, flicking the ball into the net. Um, it was like it was almost like he was in socks and playing on like a, a polished floor. Yeah, in the way he kind of skidded across. Brian Moore says, and Sharp has made it two-two. A super strike again, and a smile that says we've done it. <laughs> but, but also, what, what always amazed me was that even the power he got into it with, with the ball going down and his heel. But it, what's amazing with goals like that as well, there becomes this element of kind of um, I think there's a phrase for a psychological cont- contagion about it. Once someone does it then loads of people start to do it. Because remember then, I think Brian Roy did it twice that very season after Sharp had done it. Canu did, 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 then did one for Arsenal a few seasons later that was on the volley. And then that sort of goal became kind of standard. But as far as I can remember, Sharp was one of the first to do it. Yeah, that, that was, and that was, that was kind of what, if you felt like what European football was meant to be like, where you would see the European players do their amazing thing and they would raise the level of, of the English players who would be... Yeah inspired to kind of do their thing and we've got a couple of emails about this Dion Brown said I remember playing football at school the next day I kept running ahead of the ball just so I could try scoring like this Conkey says I got an Ince 8 jersey for my 16th birthday in 95 just before he was sold nice timing a truly brilliant midfielder I would only put Robson Keenan just about skulls ahead of him in the modern era unjustly never mentioned as greats because of off the pitch and then one last one Gareth Thomas I had the pleasure of being at that particular game Andy Prock I guess is a mate or maybe the great Andy Proc, the legendary Andy Proc, I'm not sure, treated me to a ticket as me and my old man took him to see Wolves Grimsby, a dreadful nil-nil draw played in awful conditions a few weeks earlier. A four-goal thriller versus Barcelona seemed like an acceptable swap, which actually happened to me once. I I went to see Sunderland play Rotherham. It was nil-nil because United were playing Rangers the following night, and I could only have a ticket for myself in the United end. So a mate said that if I went to Sunderland Rotherham with him and we stayed with his parents in Newcastle, then he would come to Rangers United with me. And so, yeah, we went to see Sunderland and Rotherham. Then we went to the first Rangers United game, which I reckon we'll get to on this pod at some point. I would say that that is by far the most vicious, violent, loudest, nastiest atmosphere I've ever experienced in a football match. 
Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, the first time. Not Ibrox. Not the next game at Ibrox, but that one until United scored was something else. Anyhow, United almost score again, where Kanchelskis catches Sergi dawdling under a high ball. And then he barges him out of the way, runs along the line, draws Busquets and shoots and sharp crosses and sharp shoots and it hits Nadal. Brian Moore thinks it's a penalty. I thought it was chest. I don't know what you thought. Uh, well, actually, this might be an unpopular view, but as I watched that again, my fr- and it, it, it was instinctive, which is suppose how, we, how we've been conditioned. My immediate thought was actually, why isn't I going to VAR? it's actually amazing how it's already kind of twisted thinking that in that if that's happening for a game I've seen and I'm previously so familiar with that that it can twist my thinking that my now my expectation is now that oh my god it should go to VAR yeah I I thought it was a chest but then United almost score again when Skulls catches Guardiola dawdling on the ball uh, which I greatly enjoyed I mean this is obviously Skulls like I'm trying to think at, at that point of the young players that have come through Neville had started to make a bit more of a breakthrough than the rest but was probably actually the quickest in. And I think Skull to play that season, I think he'd scored against Ipswich the previous month, uh, but still hadn't kind of made as any sort of outstanding contribution. But in this, he, he almost chips Busquets with a, with a classic effort. Yeah, and There was a little bit against Panathinaikos uh, in 2001. I took a pill before that game. Um, and uh, yeah, that goal was, at that point, the greatest creation of humankind. Um, when when that goal went in, but um, what's it? But Brian Moore says, "What a quick bit of thinking." You talked to Alec Ferguson about this young man. He'll say he's got tremendous awareness apart from everything else, which I thought was a, also a really nice summation of skulls. Yeah, yeah. And and then just on time, Barca almost score again, where Stoichkov crosses and Bruce, Bruce is on for May, and he stumbles, but he manages to take it away from Romario. Well, I mean, that, that struck me as well, given everything we've been talking about in terms of Bruce and Parker. I mean, there was a real sharpness to Bruce and his defending in that sense, and especially given the player he was up against, it was it was a pretty heroic contribution that that had United gone further in the Champions League that season, or then had they not suffered what happened in the next game, could have been seen as a key moment. Bruce, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Bruce was actually really pissed off. Like he said afterwards, the manager called me in on Tuesday and said he wanted to do a tactical thing with Paul Parker, which is just, and I wasn't included. Which That's is just like anger dripping from that. A tactical thing with Paul Parker. I was obviously disappointed, but I have to abide by his decision. It was an eventful last 15 minutes, and I was puffed and panting. I thought Sharpie was brilliant tonight and deserved his goal at the end. I was lucky to get a big foot in to stop them scoring, which is a proper don't fucking do that again, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so then after the game, Fergie says, really enjoyed the game. Two bad goals. We kept coming back. We kept creating. We went for the throat. Paul Ince responded magnificently second half when we needed someone to lift them all. And then Cruyff says, everybody could see two types of the spectacle, different qualities and approach to the game. But above all, you see that attacking football is very nice. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it is, Johan. So what did the game mean, I think? Like looking at it now with hindsight and also in the immediate future after that game what do you what do you think the game meant uh, I think it maybe drew Ferguson into a little bit of assault a false sense of security in terms of how he could play in that I think this the, the eventual draw which I suppose would you would think denotes that United are able to kind of go toe-to-toe with these teams which they weren't quite yet in that style uh, he, he felt something they could do they tried similar at camp now and then now of course there were other factors to that game not least Stoichkov and Romario stepping up, but also how, how stripped the United team was. And they just got torn apart and kind of made look really naive. Uh, and it took it took Ferguson a little while to get over that. 
of course, the, the quality of the squad had to be improved. I mean, this, this is something else I suppose it's overlooked. Because it's true there when you mentioned how United only bought David May in the summer of '94. That was their only you know update to the team at that point. And I think Ferguson has spoken about this a fair bit. Where at that at this point he started to explore the idea of signing big bigger players from Spain and Italy. But the problem was English clubs just couldn't pay the wages. They there just wasn't enough money in English football yet because you know Spain and and Italy were the big TV leagues. And, of course, that was a pretty drastically and quickly change over the course of the next decade. I think it was also Madrid and Barca, they could sell their own TV rights, and they also had much bigger grounds at that time, where because yeah. most of the money was bums on seats. It's something that's really... Strange. When you when, when I was looking at the kind of Wikipedia page of United season that year, just to kind of... Um, just to get a gauge of, you know, everything happening around that time, and it has the attendances... And like all of those group games are kind of like for, for that for that night at Old Trafford it was forty thousand. Obviously, Gothenburg and Galatasaray are much lower. Then the attendance at Barcelona over a hundred thousand. Yeah, which kind of speaks for itself. I think the other thing that I thought was because I see the full sense of security was United were able to match Barca, and a draw was was a fair result. United were not outclassed in this game in any yeah, way, right. and really might should probably have won it. But they were able to do that without Cantona and without Giggs. And I kind of wondered how Fergie would have played if he had Cantona available because he went, he played four three three, which he very rarely did. Um, but would he? He would he? What would he have done if he had Cantona available? I guess he'd have left out Butt and, tr- and tried to go and play four four two. Well, I mean, there's a thing there as well, I suppose, and it's something that even Keane has hinted at in the past. Whereas, is this foreshadowing? I mean, Cantona was still at his best at this point, even if this was the season he got. He eventually got suspended, but. The, the the issue that really grew in 96, 97, when he wasn't at his best, to be fair, whether Cantona actually represented a little bit of a problem in Europe in that he was obviously a higher level for a lot of England at that stage of his career. But maybe, I mean, let's not overlook Cantona's actual talents here. Like this was someone who was, who was considered, he had the talent to be one of the best in the world, particularly actually just around 1992. But by maybe 95, 96, when he was brilliant for United, there was that sense that he wasn't quite absolutely top-level European player. And Keane said that himself. I mean, you Uh, didn't necessarily need to be if everything else worked. I think it was more the problem of playing with a number 10. How do you play with a number 10, a proper number 10, if you want to play four, if if you don't play three at the back? Because if you play the number 10, then you lose something in midfield because you've only got two midfield players. And Cantona wasn't a number 10, like Rooney was a number 10, who would deliver yeah. you numbers of goals and assists and would also do a lot of running and a lot of chasing. Yeah. Well, he, was a number t- he was a classic number 10 in the sense of uh, he could do nothing for 85 minutes and then he produced that moment of magic to, to open a game. Or, and most or good teams, most, most brilliant teams don't have a number 10, which yeah, is yeah. actually, bringing, looking at the current United team, might be something that they have to think about going forward because one of the things I can't believe I just said going forward, what well, dickhead. But one of the things that I thought watching this game, that I think watching current United is a level of frustration because I think that this team's best level, like the current United team, is good enough to hang with almost anyone. It's the problem of what happens when they don't hit their big, when they don't hit their best level, and yeah, they also yeah. have that number ten situation with Bruno. And I think Bruno can easily play as a number eight. The problem is that you don't want to move him away from number 10 because his numbers are so outrageous. So yeah. how do you balance a midfield with Bruno where you have to have a number six and a number eight, but then if you have a number six and a number eight, then all the creative responsibility is with Bruno, particularly exactly. when you don't have a, an attacking fullback on one side. Exactly, yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. And I, I suppose that's the thing, I mean, 
I think to like to be fair, this game as well illustrates that United weren't very much weren't a flat classic English team. Ferguson was already he well he'd already moved away from that in England, but this was, I think this emphasised it. But there was still some way to go to reach the kind of maybe the kind of the cuter movement of the top European sides as well. Yeah, I, he. You can see that he he's thinking about it. Like people say, Fergie didn't know anything about coaching or tactics, and he didn't do a lot of coaching. But he was quite a keen tactician, and yeah. he he did he did understand that something different needed to be done. And he took account, taking account of the fact that oh, they've got Romario and Stoichkov, and and as as we talked about, he played that four three three. He's trying. He's trying. He he nailed his tactics for this game. Ultimately, yeah. is what I would say. This maybe this may feels like a counterintuitive view, but I actually think Ferguson's European record is actually a little bit underappreciated, or more his canniness in Europe, because people just looked at two trophies and whatever many years. But it's much more. It's not as simple as that. And what emphasises that it's not as simple as that is look at the rest of the greats. Guardiola's still on two. Mourinho's on two, and looks like he'll never get three. The record is still just three. And even that great Barcelona team that we're calling the dream team on the level, they only won one European Cup. And uh, yeah, and I think that I mean, I guess with Fergie, he was there for so long. The problem that Fergie ran into is that he ran into the best team of all time. If Fergie's our eight team were playing the teams that Liverpool got to play to win the Champions League, or the teams City haven't been able to beat, they would have at least one more and probably two more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and there are there are, there are a few years where they should re- they should have probably done it. They should have probably done it in two thousand. Maybe should have done it in ninety seven. Although I still think Juventus would have been. A level ahead in the final, but who knows if it would have been a one-off game. But some some of those defeats are kind of they're, they're just down to the way European football goes, rather than any kind of you know deeper you know moral failing. That was that was often it was and that was something that was particularly put forward in the nineties when you know any time United got knocked out, there would be this massive kind of interrogation, introspection about why it went so wrong. When you know, with the kind of with the benefit of hindsight and historical perspective, we can see we're going to have some longer term shifts here. Yeah, exactly that. And I guess, I guess that is probably a good place to end. I know you have to go, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, thanks everyone for the emails and the support. We really appreciate it. I will be back next week, and joining me will be Andy Burnham, where we will discuss the 1995 FA Cup final that we had all previously forgotten about. So thanks again, Miguel, and uh, see you again, everyone. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.